right, good morning, everybody. Before we get started today, I want to give you a big pat on the back, a big attaboy because of your faithful giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Joe said earlier, as of last Sunday, you've given $61,694 to fuel the spread of the gospel to the nations, to the darkest, to the most difficult places, to the unreached places on the planet. You've given almost $62,000 to support families like our friends in Central Asia, our friends who are about to be in North Africa. I'm sure that when they hear this news, they will be super excited about this, super encouraged by this. I know I am super encouraged by this, especially after the year that we have had here at First Baptist Church to get news like this uh, earlier this week in an email thrilled my soul. Um, there, honestly, there have been weeks when I have showed up here and thought, will anyone even come to church today, uh, let alone give like this to Lottie Moon? Um, so my heart is encouraged by this. I hope your heart is encouraged by this. I want to say, at a, at a boy, at a girl, whatever. This week, um, actually next week, we will begin what I plan to be a 10-week series of sermons that will focus on passage, passages of scripture that speak about the life of Elijah. James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 say this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about two big ideas from the life of Elijah. One, he's a man like us, with strengths and weaknesses, who experiences highs and lows, and we will look at all of those. Secondly, He's a man of power, not his own power, not some power that is inherent to him, but God's power on display through him, a man like us. And we will hopefully be encouraged uh, through the life of Elijah as we study in the Old Testament over the next 10 weeks. But I didn't want to start that series this week as we have many folks who are traveling, um, folks who are missing for various reasons. We've got folks who are here that aren't going to be here over the next 10 weeks. I want to start that series at the very, very beginning of 2019. So today... I'm just going to preach a simple gospel message from a very familiar text. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 2. And I know that in saying what I just said, I lost some of you. Uh, You checked out when I said just a simple gospel message from a familiar text. Um, Some of you never checked in. That's a whole different story for another day. So if you checked out, I want to ask you a question. What's your favorite Christmas movie? And I want, to, I want to hear the answers to this. What's your favorite Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life over here. We've got Elf over here. <laughs> he's, an angry, he's an angry elf. <laughs> what else? White Christmas. It's a good one. Home Alone. That's a favorite of our, at our house. We like Elf and Home Alone. Nobody's brave enough to say Christmas Vacation, maybe. <laughs> Just go ahead and say it. It's a favorite. All right, so let me ask you this. You've got these favorite Christmas movies. Did you watch them again this year? Like for the 20th time? And were you like, oh, this is so boring. I've seen this 20 times. I don't even care about it anymore. No, it's even more fun the 21st time, isn't it? I mean, there's stuff in Elf this year that I hadn't noticed before. This, this is a great movie. So I want, I want us to, if, if, if Christmas movies work like that, these things that are so familiar that we go through over and over and over again, if they bring a certain amount of thrill and excitement to our hearts, how much more should the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ thrill our souls when we've heard it for the 10,000th time? 
What, what a gift it is that you're able to hear the gospel for the 10,000th time, if that's what's going on in, in your life this morning. That is a gift from God. And so I want us to spend time in this familiar text today, delighting in it, rejoicing over it, letting it thrill our souls. The gospel should be infinitely more delightful to us than any Christmas movie. And we should expect that God will save people today. That this gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. So don't check out today. If anything, check in. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, read verses 1 to 10 with me. This is what God's word says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you will give us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of grace, that you would give us ears to hear clearly the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that you would give us hearts that believe in Jesus and that delight in the story of what you have done for us through him. We pray that you would help us remember who we were so that we can celebrate what you have made us to be. And we pray that you will help us to respond to all of this with action, with the obedience of faith that brings honor to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to break the text really into four or five parts today, just kind of march through it like we usually do. Um, and so we want to look first at what, what we could call the bad news. Although for those of us who have been saved by God's grace, those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, as we read even this first part, it is good news to us. Look what he says. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We'll stop there and make some observations. First observation is that the you here is plural. Uh, when, when I lived in Mississippi, they, they had this. They had a plural you. We don't have a plural you in Illinois. Um, they have y'all. And, and it's right. I don't know why this doesn't go everywhere. We need a plural you. Uh, y'all uh, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, remember, Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Ephesus. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he is writing this to believers. So the, so the plural you is to believers in Jesus Christ. The you that is described there are those of us, those of you who are believing in Jesus Christ, who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's get that right. You were. 
I think the tense here is highly significant. It is past tense. It's past tense because he is writing to those who have already been saved. They have already been raised to life. And for many in the room today, that's us. That's us. We read it just like this. And we delight in the past tenseness of this statement. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But for others in the room today, it cannot be read that way. It cannot be read in past tense. For those who are here who are apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the current reality. For those who have been saved by grace, we were dead. It's a past tense. But for those who are lost, who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So he says, you were dead. And dead there means dead. One of my favorite preachers ever said, uh, dead means dead. If it meant something else, they would have translated something else. That's a great statement. Dead means dead. Lacking ability, lacking life, and there are no, there's not a gradient, there's not a spectrum of deadness. You are either alive or you are dead. And we would never say of someone, they're really dead, right? Uh, oh, he's just a little dead. We need an ambulance because my friend is just a little dead. No, you're either all the way dead or you're alive, right? And he says in this text, God says of those who are apart from Jesus Christ that they are dead. He says of those of us who are in Jesus Christ, who are trusting in Christ, we were dead, which is an astonishing statement. So the question right here off the bat is, are you dead or are you alive? Which is it? It's one of the two. In this room today, you are either dead in your trespasses and sins, or you are alive together with Christ. We need to spend some time today considering who we are. Now, there are people who would argue um, that it's not so black and white. It's, It's not so dead or alive. There are people who would talk about the nature of man, the The views of natural man that are promoted in the world, some folks would say that man is basically fine. Just He's born and he's basically fine. He starts out fine and he goes along fine and there's not really any problem. And I think that's craziness. I don't think you can watch the news. I don't think you can read the newspaper. I don't think you can drive down the street and come away with the observation saying, man, in his natural state, basically fine. No, I think we would all look around and be able to observe that man in his natural state has a major problem. And there are other folks who would say, well, he's not fine, but he's not dead either. He's sick. He's sort of sick, maybe even mortally sick, maybe even has a sickness that will lead to death, but he's not dead already. And therefore, those folks in the second camp would argue what man needs is basically improvement. He's sick. He needs some help. He needs a little bit of improvement. He needs some some, uh, transitioning. He needs some modification. He needs some kind of help. Well, the Bible doesn't say that man is sick. The Bible says in this text that man is dead, right? Dead. And so what does he need? He needs life. He needs someone who can give him life. A dead man cannot do anything on his own. My my friend back there is a mortician. And if he were to walk into the room where dead bodies are and were to shout, boo, nothing would happen, right? There's no response from the dead bodies. Why? Because they are dead. He could, my, my brother, the, the physician, could walk into that room full of dead bodies and offer them all the medicine in the world. And would it do them any good? No. Why? Because they are dead. They are dead. They don't need help. They don't need medicine. They don't need someone to explain to them how to breathe. You just, you just got to use this muscle, this diaphragm muscle, and, 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 and suck the air in, and then you'll, then you'll live. No, they don't need someone to teach them how to live. They need someone who can give them life, right? 
And that's what the text is teaching us, that we, in our natural state, are dead. If you're in Christ, you were dead. If you are not in Christ, you are dead. That is the state of natural man, dead in his trespasses and sins. Look what it says next in the text. Dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins are always linked to death in the scriptures. This is the clear teaching of the Bible throughout. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Right? What we earn, what we deserve for our sin is death. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you will die. Right? And Satan comes along and says, ah, you won't really die. And God says, oh, yeah, you will. (laughs) They eat from the tree and death comes into the world through sin. Right? Sin leads to death always. Every time, sin leads to death. Notice he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly, formerly walked. In which you formerly walked. Walked. That walk idea there is the idea of trajectory or lifestyle or pattern. But again here, notice that when he speaks it to believers, he says, this is not the way you continue to walk. Those of you who have been raised to life, those of you who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it's not the way you continue to walk, it's the way you used to walk. It's the old pattern of life. You've got a new way to walk. In fact, I'll go ahead and give you the punchline of the whole day. Skip down to verse 10. Believers used to walk in trespasses and sins, and now you walk in good works. He says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So believers walk a whole different way than unbelievers. We walk a whole different way than we used to walk. And as he goes on in these first few verses, he talks about enemies. One scholar says there are three main enemies that we face. Three main influences that are opposed to Christ that we face on a daily basis. First is the world. We face the opposition of the world. That is the entire system that is opposed to God. This entire worldview, this entire world system that is opposed to God, that has values that are opposed to the values of God. The values of the world, the things the world cherishes, are entirely different than the things that God cherishes. The values of the world are opposed to the values of God. We have an enemy of the world. We have an enemy in the devil. The devil himself is a liar. The devil himself is opposed to Christ. The devil himself seeks destruction. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's a real enemy. The devil is a real enemy. And we have an enemy in ourselves, the flesh. This inward lust that Paul talks about here. This thought process that is sinful and opposed to God. This inward desire that we have to turn natural urges that are not necessarily sinful, natural urges that are given to us by God into perversions. Natural desires for food or sex that are easily perverted by our fleshly tendencies. One preacher told a great story about a little girl named Sally who kicked her brother in the shin and pulled his hair. And her mom said, Sally, why did you let the devil make you kick him and pull his hair? And Sally said, he made me kick him, but pulling his hair, that was my idea. We have that in us, right? And we fight that fleshly tendency 
in us. So we have this opposition from the world, the devil, and the flesh. And one scholar says that is opposition from without, from beyond, and from within. The world dominates and opposes us from without. The flesh dominates or opposes us from within, and the devil dominates or opposes us from beyond. Right. So the situation in verses 1 through 3 is dark. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, among them we, talk, we all too formerly lived in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. As if the first part of that wasn't dark enough, Paul tops it off with a mention of the wrath of God. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Sinclair Ferguson describes wrath as settled hostility of God's holy will toward everything that rebels against him. God's wrath is his settled hostility of his holy will toward everything that rebels against him. We don't talk a lot about the wrath of God. We don't sing a lot about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a real thing. It needs to be taken seriously. And a text like this that says, you were by nature children of wrath even as the rest, or it implies that some of you are children of wrath even as the rest, is a terrifying thing. James Montgomery Boyce says, the worldly mind does not take wrath seriously because it does not take sin seriously. Yet if sin is as bad as the Bible declares it to be, nothing is more just or reasonable than the holy wrath of of a holy God raised against it. Sin is as bad as the Bible says it is, then wrath makes perfect sense. And a holy God must be a wrathful God against sin. James Montgomery Boyce goes on and says, one of the most, this text is one of the most pessimistic pictures of human nature found anywhere. One of the most pessimistic pictures of human nature found anywhere. And that's why I'm so thankful for verse 4. Right? If we just spend all of our time in verses 1 to 3 talking about what man is like apart from Christ, what you were like or what some of you are like, it would be the darkest story ever. But that's not the whole story. In fact, verse 4 starts with the best word in the Bible, isn't it? But, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This changes the course entirely. This is the best change of course that we could possibly see. This is a good but in the scriptures. And Psalm 130 has a similar tone to it. Psalm 130 starting in verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's true, right? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could possibly stand? We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But, verse 4 of Psalm 130 says, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his, in, in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For, the hope for, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see that transition there? Isn't it beautiful? You were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. Some of you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. But God can make you alive today. This is good news. Now, basically, in verses 4 to 7, the picture is this. The big picture is that God is the actor in all of this. God is the initiator of all of this work. It is he who makes alive. It is he who raises up. It is he who seated us in the heavenly places. And all of this, all of this good work that God does is because of our union with Christ. It's it's all wrapped up in our union with Christ. He has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with Christ. All of this good work that God is doing is tied into our union with Christ. God is the actor. He is the initiator here. That's big idea number one. Big idea number two is that his action, his making alive, his raising up, his seating us, is based entirely in himself and not at all in us. His good work of making people alive, raising them up, seating them in the heavenly places, is based entirely in who he is and not at all in who we are. Right? This is clearly seen in that parenthetical statement which he will unpack later when he says, by grace you have been saved. Grace being this undeserved favor, this unmerited gift. It's also seen in the fact that he's described as a God who is rich in mercy. It's because he is rich in mercy that he's made us alive. It's because he is rich in mercy that he's raised us up. It's because he is rich in mercy that he's seated us in the heavenly places. It also speaks of his great love for us. His great love with which he loves us. His great love loving us is why this has happened. And it has happened in order that we might be the display of his grace in the ages to come. In fact, look at verse 7. It says in verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, that's that word henna that we have studied so much on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, the whole purpose behind him making us alive, raising us up, seating us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is not so that we will be there. It's not so that we will be alive. It's so that his grace will be on display, so that he will get honor and glory in the salvation of sinners, right? So so the end game is not you. You are not the center of the universe. He is the center of the universe. He is doing all this work of redemption for his own namesake and not for you. Right? So the big idea is that his action in salvation is based entirely in himself and not at all in us. And that is good news. Because if his action of salvation was based at all in us, it would never happen. It would never happen because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are depraved in our minds and in our souls. We are filthy. Nothing good in us. And so if salvation is going to happen, it's going to happen because of who he is and not because of who we are. And that's what this text teaches. It's what the whole Bible teaches. And this is good news because it means God saves sinners. And that's what Paul describes in verse 8. With this summary statement, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace. When we studied through Galatians last year, I said this phrase a thousand times probably, 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? We've said it over and over and over again. And it is salvation by grace alone, as a gift, a gift that is undeserved, a gift that is unexpected. Did any of you get the unexpected gift over the last week, a totally unexpected gift? I came home to a totally unexpected gift last night. Somebody dropped off some presents on our porch yesterday while we were gone. And one of those presents was to me. And it was a yard of Skittles. It was this huge box full of Skittles. 18 individual packs of Skittles. This is not healthy. But glorious and wonderful. And I didn't expect it. Came totally out of the blue. I didn't put a yard of Skittles on my Christmas list. I didn't whisper or drop any hints over the last month that I want a yard of Skittles for Christmas. It's totally unexpected and delightful, right? And grace is infinitely better than Skittles. You mark that down. That's a gold nugget right there. It's undeserved. It's unexpected. It is unearned. Grace is a wonderful gift. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but by trusting, by depending, by believing, by resting our whole weight on Jesus Christ, right? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, if you read commentaries on this verse, everybody has a take on what that applies to, and that not of yourselves. Some folks will write an entire book and say that is a reference to faith. That faith is not from you. It's a gift of God. Amen right? You can't conjure up your own faith. You can't create your own faith. If you believe, it's a gift from God. Other people will say, no, it's not a reference to faith. It's a reference to grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that grace is a gift, right? That makes perfect sense because grace and gift come ultimately from the same word and an argument can be made there. Other folks will zoom out a little bit more and say, no, it's a reference to saved. That salvation for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Well, that makes perfect sense too, right? can't save yourself. You, you would never say that. You would never say, I saved myself. You just don't use that kind of language. If you're in trouble, you don't say, I saved myself. But if someone else swoops in and rescues you, you say, he saved me. And that's not of yourselves. I think all three of those arguments are great. And so what I want to do is just zoom out even further and say, it's the whole thing. It's the whole picture that Paul is painting here of salvation. None of it is our doing. None of this is our doing. It's all his doing. All we bring to the table is sin. And we don't even really bring that to the table because we're dead. (laughs) Right? Dead men don't bring anything to the table. If we have been saved, it's all him. And therefore, he gets all the glory for it. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord and not from us. Therefore, the right response from those who have been made alive is to worship the one who has made us alive. Not to boast about being alive. Like if I, if I had a heart attack and Joe did CPR and revived me, it'd be a miracle on multiple levels probably, right? Joe brought me back to life. I wouldn't walk around for the next month saying, I'm still here. I would walk around saying, This guy saved me. I was dead and Joe came in and he brought me back to life. I wouldn't boast about being alive. I would boast about the one who brought me back to life. Does that make sense, right? And that's the picture here. If 
If salvation comes from the Lord, the right response from those who have been made alive is to worship the one who made us alive, to boast in him, not boast in ourselves. And then look at verse 10. Here's the application of the whole thing. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The ESV study Bible says this of this verse. Salvation is not by works. If it were, then those who are saved would get the glory. If it were by works, you would get glory because of what you have done. It's not by works, though. However, we were created for good works. ESV Study Bible says salvation is not based on works, but the good works Christians do are the result and consequence of God's new creation work. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are alive and you are useful in His kingdom. He has created you for service and He has prepared you to fulfill a role. You weren't weren't just brought back to life so that you could just sit there and say, look, I'm alive, I'm alive. You weren't brought back to life just so you could just sit there. You were brought back to life for a purpose, for good works that God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. No longer walking according to the course of this world, but walking in the good works that God has prepared for you. So my question is, are you just enjoying your new life? Like, are, are you... One of those folks who would say, God has raised me up. He has made me alive. And I just enjoy it. Or are you leveraging this new life, this new energy, for the sake of the one who gave it to you? He he didn't just bring you back to life so you could sit there and do nothing. He gave you life so that you could serve him. And that's the only thing that makes sense to do with this new life. To give it up entirely for the one who gave it to you. So two sections of application today. Number one is for the Christians in the room. For those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you are trusting in Jesus. You're resting your whole weight on him. This is the application for you. Number one, don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you were. That you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That you formerly walked according to the lusts of your flesh. Don't forget who you were. Paul never forgot it. You read, you read Paul's letters, he's constantly bringing up who he used to be. His days of persecuting the church. Don't forget who you were. That's number one. Maybe you have. Maybe it's been so long since you were converted that you forgot what God brought you out of. You forgot what your deadness looked like. And I'm not saying go back there and be held hostage by that. I'm saying go back there so that you can appreciate where he has brought you to now. Right? My friend Jared, every once in a while, every month or so, right, sends out a text and reminds us who he used to be so that we can praise God for who he is now. It's good stuff. Don't forget who you were. Number two, don't forget who changed you. Don't forget who raised you. Don't forget who brought you to life. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't you. It wasn't you that did any of that. It was God who did that by his grace. Don't forget that so that you don't get all puffed up and walk around like you've done something special. And number two, number three, don't forget what is expected of you now. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget who changed you. And don't forget what is expected now. He didn't bring you to life to sit in the pew and do nothing. 
I don't, I don't even think he brought you to life just so you could stand here and sing a few songs. He brought you to life to serve him, to proclaim his name to your neighbors and to the nations. Don't forget what is expected of you now. And don't forget to delight in all of this. I guess part of what I want to happen today as we close the service, as we sing one final song, I want you believers to delight in this gospel, this whole story, this good news of you were and now you are. You were dead and now you're alive. You were walking in sin, now you are walking in good works. I want you to spend some time just savoring that, delighting in it. Do you remember the Welch's, uh, Welch's grape juice campaign with the little kid who, who would take a little sip and then talk about, ooh, I, I just love how it dances across my tongue. You remember that? Not like big gulps, not like big gulps of grape juice, but just a little sip of grape juice so you can savor the sweetness of the Welch's grape juice. You remember that? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> It's probably on YouTube. You can look it up later. Sometimes when I preach this text, I hand out a piece of candy called a bit o' honey. Do you remember? Anybody remember that? Bit o' honey. Have you ever tried to eat a bit o' honey fast? Don't do it. It'll pull all your teeth out. So sometimes I, I hand out bit o' honey before I start teaching through this text, and I ask you just to savor it. Right? You can't get in a rush. You can't get in a hurry to eat a bit of honey. You've got to savor every little bit of it. And that's what I want you believers to do today. Savor the gospel. Delight in it. Let, it. let it dance across your tongue for a little while. And enjoy this good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christians, one final application. You have an incredible story. And you should tell it. Your story goes like this. Louis Giglio said it like this. I was dead. Now I'm alive. Jesus did that. That's craziness, right? I was dead. No, really dead. All the way, all the way dead, fully dead. And now I'm alive. And Jesus did that. You've got a story to tell. Last time I was looking back through some old notes, last time I preached through through this text, I had just gotten a, an email from Don Piper. Not John Piper, that'd be a lot better. Don Piper. This guy who died, went to heaven, came back, wrote a book about it, travels all around the world speaking about it. Don Piper's going to be in southern Illinois, and he's free on so-and-so date and so-and-so date. Would you like to have him come to your church and tell a story about how he was dead and came to life? And I replied, no, I've got hundreds of people with that story. And hundreds of people with that story who were dead and are now alive. In a bigger way than Don Piper ever could. They were spiritually dead, and now they're spiritually alive forevermore. So you've got a story to tell. Tell it. And maybe, maybe that's your segue. You know, a couple weeks ago I talked to you about it's an easy way to have a gospel conversation at Christmas time by asking about Christmas songs. Maybe an easy way to have a gospel conversation at the first of the year is say, I got a crazy story. Have I ever told you my story? I was dead. And now I'm alive. And Jesus did that. And tell them about the gospel. All right, Christians, that's your part of it. If you're not a Christian, if you're apart from Christ, I want to be frank. I want to be clear. You are are dead, hopeless, on your own. I'm not saying that to be mean or to scare you. I'm saying that because I love you, because the Bible is clear. You are dead and hopeless on your own. But God loves you, and he is full of mercy. And he sent his son to die in your place. You deserve to die, but Jesus came to die for you. 
This is super good news, right? And he can bring you to life. You are dead. God can raise you to life. He can make you live. He can make you useful in his kingdom. He can give you purpose to live for him. So I'm inviting you today to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. You're lost, dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm inviting you today to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. He'll raise you to life. Give you a meaning, a purpose. Make you useful to him in his kingdom. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for time together today. Thank you for meeting with us here in this place. Thank you for this good news. And I pray that you will help your people to remember who we were. To remember that you're the one who changed us. And to remember that you changed us, you raised us, you made us alive for a purpose. We want to delight in the gospel in these last few minutes and even as we leave this place. We want to savor it and enjoy it. And we want to tell the world as we leave here. We want to tell them the story of God who raises the dead. God, we pray for folks in this room who are apart from Christ, who are dead and hopeless. Only you can change it. Only you can change them. Only you can bring life. We ask that you would. That you would teach them about their sin. Teach them about your righteousness. Teach them about Jesus dying in their place. Give them faith to believe. Give them repentance to turn. Raise them from the dead for your own namesake. So that in the ages to come, you can display the surpassing greatness of your grace and kindness toward them. So that you will receive the praise that you're due from them. Help us respond to your word in faithful obedience. Christ's name we pray.